Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Andrew Latimer. He's a faculty at UC Davis School of Plant Sciences. So we're going to talk about responses to fire and drought in ecology, of which, unfortunately, uh, California seems to have more than its fair share. So, Andrew, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, tell me, it sounds like, a, I guess, kind of an unusual area to work in. What's, what's some of your background and history? Like, how did you get into this area? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's a little bit of a, my professional life is a little bit of a winding road because I, I actually started out after college, I went to law school and became an environmental lawyer for a while. And, you know, for, for a bunch of reasons, I just didn't turn out to be a great fit for me, that, that role. I was doing litigation and mostly representing the state of Massachusetts in environmental cases. And I just found myself trying to make the job into something that it wasn't, which is more of a you know, more I, I gravitated towards the biological parts of it and the conservation aspects of the job, which really wasn't the main part of the job. The main part of the job was, you know, suing people and collecting fines for breaking environmental laws, um, which I think, you know, I got to work with some great people and they loved doing that job, but I didn't. And so I, I started, I don't know, I'd always really been interested from the time I was growing up in how forests develop and I grew up in Connecticut, where in the town where almost all of the forests had actually been cut down and turned into pastures and agricultural land in the 19th century. And so by the time I showed up and, you know, I was a kid in the 70s, 20s, I'm sorry, 1970s, you know, the forest was all still pretty young and changing fast and kind of gradually realizing that by just noticing things, walking out around out in the woods and then reading books as I learned more about it, I got really fascinated in, you know, looking out across the landscape. How could you predict what kinds of trees were growing where and how fast they were coming back, how the composition of the forest and just the look of it was changing over time, the decades since it was cleared. So what uh, what are some things you noticed about forests just from your own observations early on? Well, I started, you know, one of the things that I initially thought walking around in the woods as a kid is like, well, these woods, they've been here a long time. These trees really look big. But as you walk around in the northeastern U.S. forests, you come across all these stone walls, for one thing, which give you a clue that the forest actually pretty recently was a field. And then, you know, old roads. And you find also, as you're moving through the forest, you often find dead trees. And you start noticing that, like, those dead trees are mostly cedars or or cherries or other kinds of trees that come in really quickly when a field is abandoned. And the forest had already advanced enough that those trees had grown up, lived their lives, and then other trees had come up and shaded them out, and they died. And so we're kind of living in this, you, know, you could kind of see the history of the forest recorded a little bit around you and just the structure of it. Oh, so what happens in a forest? You said certain trees, like which kinds will, you know, let's say there was a fire. Yeah. 
um, what would happen in a forest? What would you observe? Like, you know, would mushrooms come first and then certain kinds of trees or, you know, what's the life cycle of a forest, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question because, and it, does vary by place because you know now I work in California and I'm mostly focusing on California forests. But the thing that both California forests and those forests from where I grew up in the Northeast they have in common is there's some tree species that tend to grow really quickly in high light. Like if the forest canopy is removed by a fire, there's a lot of light suddenly coming down and reaching the ground. And so plant species that are able to take advantage of that light and grow fast are the ones that take over first. And then a lot of times, some of those species at least have relatively short lifespans. And then underneath them, longer lived trees that are able to tolerate the shade will start growing up in the shade of those initial trees and eventually get bigger than them and live longer and shade out those, those fast growing trees. So in some ways, you know, there's this group of species that in the Northeast would be like cedars and cherries. And here would include some of the pines that are in a sense kind of chasing disturbed areas or chasing fire. Like they they like to establish in those areas where it's open and there's a lot of light. And if there's no disturbance for a long time, eventually they're going to lose out to the species that can tolerate the shade. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. When in a forest, if there is no fire, but it's just a really old forest and there's big you know, trees that throw a lot of shade, does that lock in the forest to what it can have or it still can change from there? Oh, that's that's an awesome question. So in the deep shade under a mature forest, the light levels can be really low. Like, I mean, in a tropical forest, it could be 1% of the light at the top of the canopy. Forests like in California or Connecticut, it'd probably be more like 5 or 10% of the light. But it's pretty dark under there. And so it really changes which species are able to, to hang on and, you know, actually not starve. You know, they're able to photosynthesize enough and get enough light to maintain a positive energy balance and not starve and, and just gradually grow. And so, yeah, unless unless there's another disturbance, the trees that are able to really tolerate the deep shade are the ones that will persist. The thing is, though, that in every forest, there's always some degree of disturbance, even if it's just large old trees dying or getting blown over in storms. So you always have some patches that end up with the old trees dead and then high light levels. And so you know, that allows some of those other kinds of species that like the high light to be able to persist in the forest by chasing those gaps around. So what are some of the um, major things that help forests turn over? You know, fire, you know, what else? Is there any other natural, you know, events that help them turn over and change over a forest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, worldwide, one of the biggest sources of tree mortality, adult tree death is wind. From, yeah, big hurricanes like the ones that affected Puerto Rico several years ago. They knocked out really large areas of the canopy all at once. And that can happen other places, too. You can have tornadoes doing the same thing. Or you can just have individual trees being knocked over by high winds. And But another factor that, aside from fire, that's really important is, is insect herbivores or, you know, insects that eat trees or eat parts of trees. And in California, the biggest you know, single driver of tree mortality, at least during droughts, is bark beetles that burrow into tree bark and consume the, the tissue inside that transports water from the roots up to the leaves. And if they consume enough of that tissue, the, the tree gets girdled or killed pretty quickly. Okay. What is your role today? Like, what questions are you studying? And, uh, you know, what are you trying to figure out about forests now that you know a lot more and it's been years? Yeah, well, we're really, I'm really focused 
I'm really interested in how forests are responding to the increasing pace of disturbance, pace and scale of fire and drought-related tree mortality that's happening, especially yeah, throughout throughout the Western United States and other areas. I heard that, that um, California. I heard in California that you know the, the um. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty-seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets a hundred thousand plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast dot com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from ten to forty nine dollars a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast dot com and click support us today. Now back to the show. The government controlled lands, they haven't been good at taking out the underbrush, which seems to make those forests a lot more amenable to fire. But, you know, private acreage owned, you know, even large swaths, they're better with the underbrush and therefore there's less fire. But what have you observed in California? Is the is the forest management adequate and what needs to be done to prevent massive fires or perhaps they're a good thing? Well, yeah, you're, you're right that a lot of the forests in the state have, by historical standards, too much fuel now. They're actually, as you're talking, as you mentioned, there's underbrush that's that can be too dense, but even more so, a lot of the areas in this California Sierra forests, for example, are really just too full of trees. And so the reason is that before, roughly before the gold rush, you know, middle of the 19th century, there were a lot more fires going through that forest regularly, partly from lightning and partly from Native American indigenous peoples who started fires regularly as a land management practice. And so the historical records, some scientists have gone back and done pretty good reconstructions of the fire frequency. And it's like sick, you know, a fire pretty much every every decade, or at least two decades, was typical. And what that did, and you can imagine, you know, a fire burning across the surface of a forest floor, it's burning up all those leaves and twigs and sticks on the on the forest floor. So it reduces that amount of fuel. And also smaller trees and shrubs that are, you know, relatively small compared to the, the flames, they're going to get burnt and killed during the fire. So Frequent fire like that every decade or two is a big filter that keeps the forest from recruiting, you know, for, keeps a lot of the trees from growing, keeps the forest way less dense than it is now. So it's one of the things that's been a real su- surprise to me, honestly, after moving out here 15 years ago is I was kind of used to seeing the Sierra forest as pretty dense and green. And, you know, it's actually hard to see the ground through the through the canopies of the trees. But I've learned since then that this is really um, a recent phenomenon because of fire suppression, basically, that so many, you know, you can really see this in the records. There's some really cool places where people, foresters did surveys in the early 20th century, and you can compare those, what the forest looked like then to what it looks like now, and it's just chock full of trees now. So it's a combination of logging going in and taking out the large trees and then suppressing fire so that the small trees aren't killed, you end up with this really dense fuel-choked forest, which is a big part of the reason why we're having these large fires now. So what what kind of forest management practices have you discovered would be helpful? You know, what should what should be done that's not being done right now? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is that we really need to use fire more often to clear out fuels. And, and there's really two ways to do that. Um, one, one is prescribed fire, which the state of California is working pretty hard to try and increase the scale of that by about a factor of 20 from maybe, you know, tens of thousands of acres a year to more like half a million acres a year. And the good thing about that is, you know, it, it's just really pretty much mimics those historical low intensity fires that clean up the fuel on the surface of the forest floor and kill some of the smaller trees. And so that basically makes the forest more resilient to a fire that would come, you know, a wildfire that would come through. The other thing is that even though wildfires are often really destructive and, you know, cause deaths of people, right, of course, tragically, and then there's a lot of places where people have been burnt out of their houses and are just living in trailers around in the in the Sierras now. It's 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 really it's really rough. Are there um are there areas where people have cleaned the underbrush and they've also taken, you know, they've also thinned out the trees a bit just by manually cutting them? Yes. And they're using that for fuel would be a good idea. So they're just burning it and letting it sit there. But yeah. they don't but there's no burn. So what happens to a forest that you know is kind of human cultivated but doesn't isn't you know doesn't burn as a result over time yeah okay this is this is a really excellent question because another really key part of the management is doing that kind of thinning that you're talking about so going in and actually manually you know cutting down some of the trees often many of the smaller ones to get them out of the way and sometimes this is paid for by cutting down some of the larger trees and selling it for lumber but in any case yeah that kind of thinning fuels treatment can be really effective there's been it's actually one of the better studied forest management topics is comparing thinning forests like that using mechanical thinning versus you know comparing that to prescribed fire and comparing that to the combination of the two and just kind of skipping to the the punchline of the results of those studies the most effective combination of treatments for making forests resilient to wildfire is if you thin it and then underburn it or prescribed burn it and um, because that both immediately reduces the density of the forest and removes a lot of the fuels. And then, you know, the thing is that when you go in and cut down a lot of trees, it often leaves behind some slash or activity fuels, they're called. So bits of trees, leaves, branches on the surface. And if you can underburn it, then that cleans up that residual fuel. And so, yeah, we've done it. In my the first study I did after I moved out here was collaboration with the Forest Service and um, one of my grad students and and we went out and looked at the effects of those kind of fuel treatments where the forest was thinned and then burned and then later was hit by a wildfire. We compared those areas to areas that hadn't been treated and the difference is really dramatic, especially under extreme fire conditions where the treatments that you, know, you could really see where the fuels treatments had been because you still have live trees there. And often in the other areas, the tree survival is a lot lower. You've just got a lot of mostly dead trees. So um, does it work when people will kind of uh, turn a forest into like their own bonsai? Or is it really better to let natural forces like fire do it? Like, what, what would be the difference in outcome in a forest, again, that was manicured and stuff was taken out versus one that was just left to burn when needed? Yeah. Well, the great thing about fire, if it's burning under conditions that aren't too extreme, is even if there's a lot of fuel, it'll often have a really mixed effect on the landscape and, you know, burn really hot in some areas and kill off trees and torch up into the canopy, kill the whole tree or clumps of trees, but then in other areas will burn underneath. And so you'll have this really interesting 
kind of diverse mosaic of surviving trees, open patches. And that's, I mean, to me, that's the best kind of ultimately the best functioning forest because you've got real diversity of habitats. You've got a mix of really forested areas and low tree density areas, which is also some other studies have shown is is the best kind of forest structure for overall for maintaining snowpack um, and kind of evening out the flow of water out of the forest. So that's that's really attractive if you can get that. And some examples of that kind of management of, of using wildfire to essentially, or letting wildfire do its thing under conditions that aren't too extreme. That's been done in Yosemite and Sequoia Kings Canyon National Parks and a couple of other places. So parts of Yosemite have actually been, they've been burnt, allow, allowing lightning caused wildfires to burn for about 50 years now. And those are really interesting landscapes because they're super super diverse. You just see a whole range of fire effects just in a, in one particular watershed. I yeah, mean, there's, no, there's real, I, I would say there's real advantages to the mechanical thinning, you know, actually manicuring the forest, as you're saying, in areas where there's houses or other really important to protect infrastructure, because that's, you know, within, with, you know, within couple hundred yards of those structures, it's really advantageous to be able to control the fire. And so maintaining these zones where it's really, it's manicured, it's not the most diverse or natural forest, but it's quite fire resistant. And um, those can, you know, allow firefighting forces to protect the the neighborhoods from a fire if it's coming. Yeah, I've heard of, um, you know, people putting in, I guess, a fire break. So what what does that look like if um, if you're in an area and you have a house where you think that the forest has a high chance of burning and taking your house with it. What can you do? Or is it a huge task that no one individual person could do? It's a mix of things. I mean, how do you, how do you protect your house? There are some individual things that you can do that make a difference. One is sealing your house from embers. So that like the eaves of houses are sometimes open. And during a intense wildfire, this is something that you might not think about, but there's a lot of embers flying through the air carried by wind. And if those embers get up into the attic of a house through the eaves, then the house is going to burn. Similarly, if the roof is flammable material, the embers land on it, it'll tend to start it on fire. So those things, you know, like the exterior of the house, making it sealed and and fire resistant can make a huge difference. We actually had a just a really small scale example of this on one of the University of California's natural reserves near Davis. We had one recently built field station that we built out of fire resistant materials and in a fire resistant way. The fire just went right around it. It didn't burn. The old, unfortunately, the director's house was an old house that hadn't been updated and it, it, uh, the same, same kind of fire environment, but it, it burned to the ground. But you, you also raise another point that so in addition to these things you can do right around your house, like the house itself, and then not having a lot of fuel right around, you know, within a perimeter around your, you know, you don't want a lot of shrubs right under your house or trees right next to it that might catch fire. At the same time, there's some things that, you know, you can't protect against as an individual. You would really need essentially a perimeter to be set up around the whole neighborhood or town where firefighters could cr- you know, a fire break, essentially, that might be a really well-treated, manicured forest strip where firefighters could stop the fire from burning. 
Do you, um, how often do you get time to go out to the, the forest that you're, you're studying? Are you stuck in the lab a lot of the time or do you get a lot of time in the forest? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I am stuck in the lab a lot of the time or actually, you know, behind the computer a lot of the time, analyzing data and doing the things that, you know, <laughs> managing projects, I guess. But I do get a chance to get out several weeks a year. And so that's been really uh, rewarding for me because we, what we tend to do for our field research is we hire teams of young people, often, often recent college graduates or undergrads, and led by a, a graduate student or a postdoc, you know, a graduate student from here. And we go out and train them in the field in the methods that we're using. And so I get to go spend a week or so with them out in the field. We kind of shake down our methods and make sure it's working well. But it's an opportunity to really see. I've been able to get out to see many of the fires that have burned in the last several years, you know, since we've had this real explosion of of wildfires, especially in 2020. It's been really it's been really fascinating to get out and see what does that look like on the ground and what kind of range of responses are happening with the, with the plants specifically, because that's what I study. So you don't get out as much as you would like, but you still get out there and you sit and you observe the forest as you're yeah. studying it, at least sometimes. Right. That's good. So we get to walk around, you know, we have these you know, 10 hour days typically of field work. So you're out there a lot, just moving from place to place and measuring trees and looking at what species of plants are coming back or, or dying or living. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what do you notice now that you have a lot more experience with these and you're, you know, you're not a kid anymore? Yeah. What are some things that you see in a forest that maybe other people have no idea to look for? Any um, particular markers, forest that you notice that other people might not look for that tell you about yeah. health? That's yeah. Okay, great question. Um, well, one of the things I, I would say that's you can notice once you're tuned into it is looking at what plants are coming back immediately after the fire, the first year, and even though those plants are still really small. I think you can start to see what the future of that forest area is going to be because some areas you'll see are really dominated by uh, a lot of shrubs that some of them are able to re-sprout from their base. You know, the top gets burned, but the roots are still alive. And so they'll re-sprout and others are, are um, in the seed bank. You know, there's a lot of seeds actually of shrubs typically under the, in the soil and they get stimulated to germinate by the hot temperatures from a fire. And so often you see a real burst of shrub recruitment. And I think a really important way of looking at that immediate, you know, initial response to the fire that will tell you to some degree whether this is going to return quickly to a forested state or not is are there also tree seedlings mixed in there at the same time? So if there are, and the se tree seeds get there early in the first year, or maybe two after the fire, the trees actually will start growing taller, faster than the shrubs and will win that race for light and start shading the shrubs out and kind of take over the site. If for whatever reason, the tree seeds aren't there, for example, if the adult trees have been killed nearby or it's a really dry year and the seeds get there, they germinate, but the seedlings die because it's a super dry year like it was in 2021, for example, then even if there are more tree seeds coming in later, the shrubs will have grown up tall enough that they've created this really shady environment on the, that's hard for seedlings to grow in. So looking carefully at what's coming up right after the fire is, is a good, you know, you can, you can sort of be a little bit of a, you can make a forecast based on that of whether that area is going to be resilient to the fire or not. Okay. 
Um, so what are, I don't know, what are some big questions you're trying to answer right now with your research? Like what, what do you, what would you consider a breakthrough in understanding that you're working mm. on mm-hmm. if it happened? One of the things we're really trying to do is build predictive models to be able to survey a landscape and tell foresters, okay, here are the places where tree seedlings are likely to come up and survive and thrive. And so you could kind of leave those areas alone. And here are the other, you know, these other areas where you're not likely to get new trees coming up. And if you want a forest to come back relatively quickly, those would be the places to target with, with planting seeds. And so we're pretty excited about using drone technology, you know, flying drones over these areas that have been burned and then using artificial intelligence or computer vision methods to take those thousands of drone photographs over an area, maybe a thousand acres or something, and map all of the surviving trees. It's it's pretty cool because these, these um, you know, the same kind of models that basically do the facial recognition on your phone, if you have an Apple phone anyway, <laughs> Uh, and um, are, can also do a really good job of seeing what it's easy to see whether a tree is alive or dead after a fire. But then if it's alive, what species is it and how big is it? So you can really survey, you know, like tens of thousands of trees in a day using this method. And then if you know where those trees are, what the species are, how big they are, you should be able to project how many seeds are the, each of those trees going to make, how far are they likely to go? That's where the seedlings are likely to be. So we're trying to develop this kind of tool for uh, post-fire management and see how, see how well, uh, you know, basically helps, helps to restore forests. How come again, um, you know, the underbrush is not cleared and trees are not thinned because I would think it would be a very substantial fuel source if you were to do that. Like, I mean, like, I don't know, has anyone done the calculation? I know it depends on the forest, but ballpark like per hectare, or per whatever, you know, how much burnable material could you get, you know, in doing proper forest management techniques? And, you know, what would be the best use of that material? Yeah, there is a lot of material, you know, flammable material, burnable material, you could get biomass, you can get out of forests by doing fuels thinning. And yeah, there's actually a lot of work on this, on the where, where, why isn't it happening? I think it's two things. And one is simply personnel like limitations of how many people and how much equipment there is compared to the millions and you know tens of millions of acres of forest that you could treat you can only do a small chunk every year and it's kind of like running on a treadmill because or you know up the down escalator because you know you can thin and clear and or or underburn or prescribe burn an area of forest and then that's in good shape within about 20 years it's it's going to be fuel loaded again so you can never you're never done. You have to kind of keep, you know, you've got to treat millions of acres a year and that's possible, but right now we don't have the capacity to do it. The other issue is, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert in in biomass energy, but there's there's an economic constraint of the cost of moving the material from the forest to the biomass energy plant where it could be burned. So there are examples of this. Like I was just talking to somebody who was involved in a project to start a small biomass energy plant in the town of Quincy, California, and it's working well. And it, there's enough forest products or you know forest waste coming out to supply that uh, plant. And it, it is really small. I think what you'd need is lots of small plants like that spaced very widely throughout the forest, because the farther you have to move 
all this biomass, the more that costs and the more fuel it takes to fuel the trucks and, you know, it's the trucker's time and the use of the truck. So, you know, versus the value of the energy in that fuel. So it's really only worth it if you can bring it a short mm. distance and start and, and burn it right away. Oh, all right. That's what um, I mean. If you, if you did this in, you know, if you have vast swaths of forest and you, you know, I don't know how wide a fire break needs to be. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll guess, uh, I'll say uh, 50 feet wide, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But if you were to, if you were to do this just in strips around the major areas of forest, you could at least theoretically contain a big fire. If it was to come, you could, I guess a fire oh. would, would uh, burn in, in cells instead of just a huge monolithic fire. So why yeah. not do something like that? You know, that no, work? that's a great, that's a great question. That's a great idea. And I, it's actually fits in really well with, there's a guy I collaborate with who's a forest service researcher and is, also works here at UC Davis, Malcolm North. He's been developing with some collaborators. They've got this, yeah, basically conceptual scheme that outlines, it's pretty similar to what you just said, of creating these pods or fire sheds or areas where you've got a pretty good containment around, you know, treated areas that allow you to burn that unit without having it spread to other units. And that's a lot of work to do that, but it's a lot less work than trying to treat continuous area, large continuous areas. Of right. Yeah. And it lets would, the would fire them, do a lot of the work. Yeah. Like I know it depends on weather and all kinds of other stuff where the fire will go, but um, what, maybe this sounds like a silly question, but what is the biggest problem about these large fires? Like where do they tend to accelerate and go where they become truly uncontrollable versus fightable? You know, what are the elements that cause that to change from one to the other? Yeah. You put your finger on a really, really key question and so in terms of the mechanistic so let me just start by saying like in terms of mechanistic modeling of the physics of fires and how they move and develop that's actually kind of a research frontier because the models that we mostly use for predicting fire behavior are based on pretty kind of rough empirical uh, relationships and they're they're decades old now so there's a lot of people working on that exact problem of you know what, where's that threshold where a fire kind of tips into being uncontrollable? But we could also look at like the history of lots of different fires, thousands of fires that have burned throughout California or the West, and and look at what are the conditions that under which each each of those fires burned each day that it burned, and what are the days? So this is the thing as you're as you're talking about. I think you know a lot of it. The the problem is not so much that areas are burning; it's that large areas are burning under these really extreme conditions where the fire is killing almost all the trees or is moving really quickly in a way that's very dangerous to people. And there's only a handful of days each year where that really happens. So they're these rare extreme events. And so they're hard to predict, but there's some, there's a pretty good understanding of some of the elements that go into that. And one is just really dry fuels. So hot, dry weather. So the drier, when, when fuels get really dry, it, Essentially, it's kind of like erasing some of the speed bumps that might normally be there in the landscape that would slow fire down. So potentially like wetter areas that are in a valley. If it's really dry and it's been dry for a while, it's an extra hot day. Even the fuels in those areas will be really dry. The fire will move fast through them. So that barrier would be gone. Also, nighttime is a really key barrier. And it's when firefighters do a lot of their work because in nighttime, you know, it's it always gets cooler, right? And it also tends to get more humid. 
at the same time, which slows fire behavior way down. And that's when often it's possible to contain fire. But if you've got a fire that's burning really intensely, one, one of the things that's actually happened recently is that nighttime temperatures are sometimes not getting as cold as they used to be, or the humidity isn't coming up as high as it historically normally does. And those nights, those hot, dry nights are really dangerous because then there's no no break. You've got no kind of like nighttime speed bump for the fire either. So that, for example, like a really good example, I think of, of these, these kind of dynamics is the Dixie fire from 2021, which is almost a million acres large and it's the largest single ignition fire in California history, recorded history. And yeah, both of these things happened. The f- 2021 was an exceptionally dry year. It was also a hot time when the fire was burning. So there weren't these like speed bumps in the landscape. Even the cooler north slopes or valleys were also super dry, just ready to blow up. And then nighttime, some of the nights also didn't get that cool. And so the fire just, there was no chance to really make headway against the fire. Yeah. Why not create a series of impoundment ponds, not only to gather Mm -hmm. water, which California seems to be, you know, not having nearly enough of, but also to act as natural fire breaks and natural sources of humidity. You know, if there's a fire around a man-made lake, I guess a lot of water would probably vaporize and humidify everything. And maybe, maybe I don't know if it would be consumed, but it might help a lot. Yeah, so that's an interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And you do see sometimes around reservoirs, you know, the trees will have more water and you'll get green surviving strips of trees. So it's possible. One of the problems is that if you created those impoundments in a lot of places, they would dry out in really dry years like 2021. And you, you know, because the groundwater is really depleted and unless it was a really large reservoir, it'd be hard to keep it wet. So I think there's like a fundamental kind of limit. And during a, during an extreme drought in California, we just get really low on water everywhere. Um, So it's hard to, I mean, I think you're onto something like if you can make, this actually could go back to the question about how do you defend your home? So one of the things that will keep trees alive during a fire and prevent them from being burned is if they're watered. You know, if their foliage is full of water, they're less likely to catch fire. So you do see trees, even in some of the towns where the houses end up getting burned, sometimes the trees between the houses have been watered by the landowner, you know, the house homeowner, and um, the trees survive, although the house, which, you know, maybe is more flammable, burns down. Okay. Very interesting. Well, um, Thank you for coming on the podcast. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, thanks for asking. So, well, probably the best way is our lab website, which is latimer.ucdavis.edu. And we try to keep that up to date, at least with the publications we're putting out and some of the research projects we're working on. Okay, well, very good. Again, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.